Yes, I'm sure some of you were thinking, hey, they didn't do the good, the bad, and the ugly. So hearing the familiar Ennio Morricone's theme to Il Buono, Il Bruto, e Il Cattivo, the good, the bad, and the ugly must have come as quite a relief. So as per our usual feature, we would note that it was a good week last week, according to The Week magazine, for copying Adam and Eve with the news that a Virginia evangelical church has begun offering nude church services, claiming that foregoing clothes was in line with Jesus' anti-materialistic message. Said Pastor Alan Parker, If God made us that way, how can that be wrong? (laughs) Well, Pastor Parker, we don't think it can be. And if we're ever in Virginia, you know where we'll probably be on Sunday. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for looking up after scientists revealed that species of crocodiles, which are found in Florida, Mississippi, and Africa, are in fact capable of climbing trees. One Nile crocodile was spotted on a branch 13 feet up. Who knew? And finally, we may have to spend some time on this one. It was an ugly week last week for, I don't know, is it zoology, penguins, pharmaceuticals? We're not sure. But here's the story. Evidently, a colony of South American penguins at the British Zoo were prescribed antidepressants to help them cope with the torrential rains that have battered the country for weeks. Said a spokesperson, they are thoroughly fed up and miserable. Now, what makes people at the zoo imagine that antidepressants are going to help their penguins? As we've repeatedly pointed out on this program, antidepressants have a pretty poor track record in treating humans. Not to say they might not help some people sometimes, but study after study has shown that the various antidepressants, which are so often employed by psychiatrists and primary care doctors, don't seem to be better than placebo overall. And we do have to question the diagnosis of penguin depression. What's next? Ads on the BBC saying, oh, if your penguin is still depressed after taking antidepressants, maybe you want to add Abilify. And it was both a good and bad week last week, depending on how you want to look at it, for suicide bombers, with the news from Samara in Iraq that a terrorist commander teaching a class on suicide bombing accidentally blew himself up, along with 21 of his pupils. The explosion took place in a rural area of Salahuddin province north of Baghdad at a training camp for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, a militant group once affiliated with al-Qaeda. Many Iraqis took a grim pleasure in the news, and it's hard to blame them. And speaking of idiot zookeepers, it was both a bad and ugly week for Danish zookeepers with the news that last week, zookeepers in Copenhagen shot Marius the giraffe and dissected him in front of children and then fed him to their lions. Evidently, vets doing the autopsy held up body parts to show the kids. Zoo official Bent Holst brushed aside the global outrage and criticism, saying zoos were meant to educate, not to make nature into a Disney world. He said Marius, a healthy two-year-old giraffe, was euthanized because his genetic history made him unsuitable for the zoo's breeding program. Yes, giraffe ethnic cleansing in Denmark. The part I like best, a lot of zoos offered to take Marius off their hands, but uh, Holt said 
The only zoos that offered to take him did not have the same ethical standards that the Copenhagen facility has. Presumably that means other zoos would not see fit to execute Marius, chop him up, feed him the lions, and along the way, show the body parts to observing children. Now wait a minute, this does give us an idea. Is there some way that Anders Bering Brevik can be transferred to Copenhagen? Because euthanizing him and feeding him the lions seems like a better idea than what they did to poor Marius. We did the disclaimer, right? Yes, we did. Okay. Now, we don't have time to go through this in great detail, but we did note on last week's program that, that if someone knew something about how Argentina manages to trash its economies, please drop us a line here at Info at Radio Parallax. Well, apparently our listeners at The Economist magazine, no doubt having heard the show, decided, you know, this would be a good time to put a cover story out called The Parable of Argentina, subtitled What Other Countries Can Learn from a Century of Decline. And by God, if you want to understand why Argentina's been in decline for the past century, what better source than to pick up the current issue of The Economist? And indeed, the piece notes that 100 years ago, back in 1914, Argentina ranked among the 10 richest nations in the world, after the likes of Australia, Britain, and the U.S., actually ahead of France, Germany, and Italy. It had fertile agricultural land, sunny climate, a new democracy— an educated population, and immigrants were tangoing in from everywhere. Noted the economist, for the young and ambitious, the choice between California and Argentina was a tough one. The note of the magazine, the country is currently a wreck. A wreck that can be blamed on the incompetence of its political leadership, currently Cristina Fernandez, but it notes that she's merely the latest in a succession of economically illiterate populists, which stretch back to Juan and Eva Perón, and even before. They note that Chileans and Uruguayans, who Argentinians used to look down on, are now richer. Children from both those countries, as well as Brazil and Mexico, do better in international education tests. In discussing this matter, the magazine asks, why dwell on a single national tragedy? They note that when people consider the worst that can happen to their country, which we would add, like Zimbabwe, they think of totalitarianism, adding that given communism's failure, that fate no longer seems likely. If Indonesia were to boil over, its citizens would hardly turn to North Korea as a model. And governments in Madrid or Athens are not citing Lenin as the answer to their Euro travails. They note that the real danger is inadvertently becoming the Argentina of the 21st century, adding that slipping casually into steady decline would not be hard. Extremism is not a necessary ingredient, at least not much of it. Weak institutions, nativist politicians lazy dependence on a few assets, and a persistent refusal to confront reality will do the trick nicely. Anyway, it's a fine piece. I can't possibly do it justice in a few minutes. I recommend that, uh, you know, you check it out. They've got some pretty smart people writing for The Economist, and they write well. They have a very business-oriented analysis of things, but uh, we find that they are often right. All right, in, in the five minutes we have left, let's talk about a few other miscellaneous things. Let's continue in, in a Latin American vein, first of all. Noting that we've been very skeptical on this program over the years about reforms that they've been touting in Cuba, but we kind of think that things really are changing. Last week, a friend of mine in Cuba took some photographs, attached them to an email, and sent them to me. That, that doesn't sound like a major advancement, but uh, wow, that, that's been a radical departure from what things have been like over the past few years. And it's a damn welcome sign. The Economist had a few things to say about Cuba. 
in the issue of dealing with Argentina. In the Bellow column, they asked, how best should you speed change in Cuba? And they note the, the past few weeks have brought three different answers to that question from the U.S., the European Union, and Latin America. Noting that for more than 50 years, the official American answer has been to try and asphyxiate Cuban communism through an economic embargo and also to encourage internal dissent. Noted the economist, it was policy as tantrum, a counterproductive failure. Change is coming to Cuba, from, but from the top, not from below. And apparently across the Florida Straits here in America, the changes taking place in Cuba are causing long monolithic support for the embargo to crumble, which we would add it's about time. The embargo was put in place by John F. Kennedy, our 35th president. We're now on Barack Obama, our 44th president. The Castro brothers have outlasted eight presidents, three of whom served two terms. We'd have to agree it's time to abandon the embargo. For its part, the European Union, whose members maintain economic ties with Cuba, announced that it wants to start talks on a, quote, political dialogue and cooperation agreement, unquote. It's worth noting that since 1996, there's been a kind of embargo light between the EU and Cuba. They wanted to promote a transition to democracy, but um, the EU now appears to be abandoning that. For its part, Latin America has never really bothered. In fact, many Latin American leaders have always seen being friendly to the Castros as a cost-free way of showing they no longer take political direction from Washington. Of course, the article does note that one thing that may be a key to speeding the changes going on in Cuba lies in Caracas, thanks to an alliance between Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez, Venezuelan aid accounted for about 15% of Cuba's GDP. But years of misrule have brought Venezuela to the verge of an economic implosion and the fear of losing Venezuelan petrodollars, as well as its apprehensions about the biological factor, as Cubans call the death of the elderly Castros, that's driving the island's halting process of change. Well, whatever the reason is, we, we hope it continues. We don't think the economic isolation of Cuba has done it a whole lot of good. It certainly has hurt the Cuban populace. I've seen this with my own eyes. And since we're down to about our last minute, I don't have time to tell you about my own personal investigation of what's going on in Latin America, which consisted of a trip to Mazatlan since we were last on the air. Except it may be a quote from two Sacramentans I, I met while down there. There's a lot of drug traffic going on up, Sinal up through Sinaloa, and uh, a lot of people are fearful about the crime and the potential for getting hurt by going to that uh, part of Mexico. But noted Martin, a Sacramentan who was down there for a few months, it's probably safer down here than it is back in Sacramento. Now, part of that may due to the fact the Mexican government has flooded the area with police, but whatever. I think he's probably right. One does not feel unsafe in Mazatlan. So if you're thinking about a trip down there, well, go ahead and think about it. But I did realize on the plane down there, I wasn't sure what the exchange rate was. Using the arithmetic of, a, of an economist article, which referred to the price of a, of a program as 45 billion pesos or $3.4 billion, I'll calculate a 13.2 to 1 exchange rate, which depends on whether you're buying or selling. When you go to trade your dollars down there, you're going to get more like 12.4, which segues into the final quote. Being a little unsure about the tipping practices, upon getting the bill, I put a 500 peso note into the envelope containing the bill, and I asked Domingo, who I was dining with, how much I should leave for a tip. His response was, let's see how much he brings back. And it turns out he brought the right amount back and he was satisfied. That about does it for today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. 
This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Yeah.